This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thanks very much for tuning in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. The death of Queen Elizabeth II last week has inspired an outpouring of well wishes from people all over England, from around the United Kingdom, from nations in the British Commonwealth, all over the world and beyond. It's also brought out a very different kind of response from a lot of people. It's difficult to say, but probably a much smaller number of people who are using the event to dredge up criticisms of Britain's past and the Queen's supposed connection to it. In our first segment, we're going to talk about this notion that the British monarchy is inextricably connected with slavery. In a sense, it is. The fact is that it was singularly responsible for ending the practice of slavery. In our second segment, we'll talk with the Trumpet's English correspondent, Richard Palmer, about the reason the American press in particular has been so quick to fixate on these negative associations with the royal family. There's actually an important biblical reason. In our third segment, we will focus on the positive perspective about the Queen, a personal account from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about his experience growing up in one of the British Commonwealth nations. Uh, and he was proud to be a subject of Queen Elizabeth II. And we'll finish the program today with a story of a man who tried to save Britain by translating the world's most important book. I'll start by reading a headline representative of a remarkable amount of the press coverage in America on the death of Queen Elizabeth II. It's from USA Today. Last Friday, the headline, Queen Elizabeth's Death Stirs Debate About Colonialism, Slavery, and British Racism. This article quotes a statement from the Economic Freedom Fighters. This is a political party in South Africa, uh, a former British colony, the third largest party in both houses of South Africa's parliament. Their statement is, we do not mourn the death of Elizabeth because to us her death is a reminder of a very tragic period in this country and Africa's history. During her 70-year reign as queen, she never once acknowledged the atrocities that her family inflicted on native people that Britain invaded across the world. And this article in USA Today also brings up the accusation that Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, made in her interview with Oprah Winfrey that someone in the royal family questioned whether her son would be, quote, too dark to represent the UK. So there was a strong implication that the royal family is racist. Now, this is this is the type of thing that we're hearing quite a bit from in the American press uh, over this past week. Another example, Time published an article this past Monday that said this, in the 18th century, the new state was defunded and strengthened by constant wars that expanded Britain's empire and the slave trade 
and drove the Industrial Revolution. Fossil fuels and industrial metals were relentlessly extracted from the earth in Britain and its colonies, quietly unleashing a process of climate change and transforming human relations. The monarchy helped drive these revolutionary changes as the most important among the corporate partners that made up the 18th century British state, along with formidable aristocrats, financiers, contractors, charter companies, and the Bank of England. It established, invested in, and protected slave trading and colonialism. This is what many people are saying and focusing on, directing their attention to in light of the Queen's death, the idea that she was tainted by her connection to this institution that promoted slavery and many other forms of human and environmental exploitation. Now, this is an incredibly perverse view of the British monarchy and British history. We'll talk more about this in just a bit. But first, I want to look at a report issued by the United Nations this past Monday. Two UN agencies, the International Labor Organization and the International Organization for Migration, issued a report called Global Estimates of Modern Slavery, Forced Labor and Forced Marriage. Now, this report says that the latest estimates indicate Quote, there are 50 million people in situations of modern slavery on any given day, either forced to work against their will or in a marriage that they were forced into. This number translates to nearly one of every 150 people in the world. The estimates also indicate that situations of modern slavery are by no means transient. Entrapment in forced labor can last years, while in most cases, forced marriage is a life sentence. So this report says that one out of every five people trapped in forced labor are children. And more than half of these children are being sexually exploited. This report says nearly one in four people subject to forced labor are suffering from, quote, commercial sexual exploitation. And the people who are hardest hit are the poor and women and children. Now, think about this. In 1850, when slavery was still legal in much of the United States, the average cost of a slave in the U.S. was the equivalent of $40,000 in today's currency. Today, if you can believe it, a slave costs an average of $90. Many historical accounts depict how savagely slaves were treated. So think about how slaves are treated right now when they are bought for not even 1% of the price. It truly is horrific, and there are plenty of detailed descriptions on the internet that that confirm just how egregious the abuse that so many of these people suffer really is. These UN agencies last published estimates on global slavery five years ago, and the numbers have grown a stunning 25% since then, an increase of 10 million more people living in slavery today than there were five years ago. 
The head of the International Labor Organization, Guy Ryder, said this, It is shocking that the situation of modern slavery is not improving. It's not improving. Think about this. Slavery in our world today is more widespread than it has ever been in human history, and it continues to expand dramatically. Now, how much do you hear about this? How much are the leftist politicians and the academics and the media commentators going after this modern scourge to expose it, to bring justice to these enslaved peoples? They're very eager to talk about Queen Elizabeth supposedly aiding and abetting slavery. But what about the people and the institutions and the companies and the nations that are actively contributing to the enslavement of 50 million people right now? Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, has a powerful article in the newest print edition of The Trumpet, Lincoln's Fight for True Freedom. And he talks about how committed Abraham Lincoln was to eliminating slavery from the United States, how he felt this was crucial to America being able to realize the ideals spoken of in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mr. Fleury wrote this, all men are created equal. What a powerful statement. And the Declaration of Independence was the first time in history that a nation declared it. How amazing that the founding fathers proclaimed it to the world. They sought to make this new country an example to the world. They shouted this out to the nations. All men are created equal. Now, how much do we believe this today? Lincoln was willing to fight for it. How well do we live up to that ideal of America's founding? And how much are we willing to fight for that? A lot of people intensely criticize America, as well as Britain, for being unequal, for being racist. They rail over America's legacy of slavery, which was made constitutionally illegal over 156 years ago, five or six generations ago. So they they rail against that, but what are they doing about the slavery going on right now? Listen to this quote from Mr. Fleury. So many people today brand America as racist, yet think on this. 73% of the players in the National Basketball Association are black. They make millions of dollars playing their games in China. That is, if they will keep their mouths shut about the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs are slaves in China. They are treated barbarically and abused unmercifully. Their women are raped. Yet the NBA willingly stays quiet about this atrocity. There's simply too much money to be made there. The same is true of all the technology companies and corporations. They make billions of dollars by doing business with China. Therefore, they dare not say anything about the Uyghurs or China's plans to take over Taiwan. Are these people really concerned about slavery? Slavery has been terribly common throughout human history. And again, there are more people literally enslaved today than there have ever been. So why is it that the only exploitation these moralists focus their hatred on 
is that supposedly committed by the British and the Americans? Why would they speak out more against Queen Elizabeth, of all people, than against China? The fact that they say nothing about the actual slavery going on today shows you the real nature of their attack. It is perverse how they will go on and on about Britain and America's slavery and systemic oppression and microaggressions to virtue signal, to make themselves feel righteous and enlightened and woke. And they have nothing to say about present-day slavery, actual oppression, genuine aggression. But let's talk about this notion that British colonialism was built on subjugating black and brown people that the monarchy enriched itself at the expense of its colonies. Did you know that the primary reason Britain expanded into Africa was to shut down the slave trade? African leaders were deeply involved in selling slaves. Just to give you one example, King Gizo ruled the Western African Kingdom of Dahomey, which is now in Benin. From 1818 to 1858, he said this, The slave trade has been the ruling principle of my people. It is the source of their glory and wealth. Their songs celebrate their victories, and the mother lulls the child to sleep with notes of triumph over an enemy reduced to slavery. The British went down there to provide an alternative to slavery. They wanted to give these leaders a way of engaging in trade without selling people, without selling their fellow man. In his book, Churchill's Military Histories, Algis Valiunas wrote this, the explorer John Speak, who discovered the source of the White Nile, found African misery so appalling that he exhorted his countrymen to do, quote, nothing less than to regenerate Africa, the prey of Arab slave traders and the subjects of brutal black tyrants, the tribesmen of Buganda, now Uganda, stood in need of British protection. This man said, they require a government like ours in India and without it, the slave trade will wipe them off the face of the earth. Now these slaves were being shipped all over the place, to Cuba, to Jamaica, elsewhere throughout the Caribbean. Brazil was by far the largest destination. All through Europe, Portugal, France, the Netherlands, Spain. Richard Palmer wrote an article about this in our September 2020 Trumpet magazine. He said the slave trade was incredibly profitable. A slave in the Americas would sell for about eight times the price he cost in Africa. And in 1805, Britain became the undisputed master of the world's oceans after winning the Battle of Trafalgar. The stage seemed set for Britain to profit more than ever from this evil trade. Instead, the opposite happened. In March 1807, Britain outlawed the slave trade. In his book, Empire, Niall Ferguson called it an astonishing volta face. Toward the end of the 18th century, something changed dramatically, he writes. It was almost as if a switch was flicked in the British psyche. It's not easy to explain so profound a change in the ethics of a people, Ferguson wrote. 
It used to be argued that slavery was abolished simply because it had ceased to be profitable, but all the evidence points the other way. In fact, it was abolished despite the fact that it was still profitable. Britain had a change of heart. It decided that it wanted to end this evil practice. It stopped trading slaves, but it didn't stop there. It actually worked to stop other nations from trading slaves. It used its diplomatic muscle to convince Portugal to limit the slave trade in 1810. It encouraged France to renounce it in the 1814 Treaty of Paris that ended the Napoleonic Wars. It was instrumental in putting an end to slavery in the Netherlands and Spain. In 1833, the UK passed the Slavery Abolition Act, outlawing the practice within British colonies and immediately freeing some 800,000 slaves. Britain paid out billions of dollars in today's money to free these slaves. It took out a loan that was so large that it only finished paying it off in 2015. In 1808, Britain just deployed the Royal Navy to patrol the waters off Africa's west coast to go after slave ships that were still operating. Jan Morris wrote in her book, Heaven's Command, that because Britain's naval dominance was assured after the war with Napoleon, for the first 30 years of Victoria's reign, the Royal Navy's chief task was the interception of slavers. Now, there was a lot of opposition from other countries who were much less enthusiastic about giving up this very lucrative practice. And Mr. Palmer writes, but Britain persevered, pouring heaps of money into the endeavor. The Navy captured 1,600 slave ships between 1808 and 1860, freeing 150,000 Africans. It was actually the effort to abolish slavery that caused Britain to engage more with the rest of the world. Jan Morris writes, The first monuments of Queen Victoria's empire were monuments of liberty. The fight against slavery at its source would continue throughout the Victorian era, being a prime motive of the great mid-century explorations. And Mr. Palmer shows how Britain particularly went after areas they held on, that held on to slavery, Brazil, Cuba, Nations in East Africa, he spotlights the work of renowned Victorian explorer Dr. David Livingstone, who worked to end the East African Arab slave trade. This is an excerpt of a letter he wrote to the New York Herald addressing the United States. Dr. Livingstone said, If my disclosures regarding the terrible Eugenian slavery should lead to the suppression of the East Coast slave trade, I shall regard that as a greater matter by far than the discovery of all the Nile sources together. Now that you have done with the domestic slavery forever, now that you have done with domestic slavery forever, speaking to America, lend us your powerful aid toward this great object. This fine country is blighted as with a curse from above in order that the slavery privileges of the petty sultans of Zanzibar may not be infringed and the rights of the crown of Portugal, which are mythical, should be kept in abeyance till some future time when Africa will become another India to Portuguese slave traders. He was soliciting America's help to end this practice. 
Mr. Palmer writes, with the American Civil War effectively ending the Atlantic slave trade, the West Africa squadron switched to the east. In 1890, Britain made a deal with Germany, swapping Helgoland in the North Sea for Zanzibar. What had been a major slave trading station became the center of Britain's anti-slavery work in East Africa. No other powers in the world have this kind of anti-slavery history. I'd really encourage you to read this article from Mr. Palmer. The real reason our statues are under attack. We'll link to it in the show notes. Far too often, these attacks by the left go unchallenged. People don't know their history, and they'll believe anything, especially if it has this pseudo-intellectual, anti-colonial flavor. But again... What about the actual slavery going on in the world today? You, you have to know that with more and more of society giving way to lawlessness and violence and unbridled emotion and aggression and satanic thinking, that these people living in slavery today, right now, living outside of civilized life, beyond the margins, in the shadows, that they're being treated abominably. And there are 50 million of them. This should deeply concern us. It concerns God. Slavery is a terrible thing. God hates it. He doesn't want anyone to have to endure slavery. And you know, there are a lot of scriptures in your Bible that prophesy of God setting slaves free, loosing the bands of wickedness, undoing the heavy burdens, letting the oppressed free, breaking every yoke, and bringing those who enslaved them to justice. God promises to do that when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, back to earth. The job of liberating the captives did, in fact, make impressive progress at the direction of the British monarchy and leadership. But it will be finished globally, this job at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Godspeed that day. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The amount of respect and support worldwide for Queen Elizabeth II since her death last week has been tremendous. But there has been a bizarre trend, especially in the American media, to focus not on that, but on the small minority of people who considered the Queen racist and the whole monarchy a relic of exploitative British imperialism. To talk about this, we have via Skype from our office in England, Richard Palmer. Hello there. Hi. So first, let's just talk about the big picture. It really has been remarkable to see the overwhelming support for the Queen since her death. What has been your view? Yeah, absolutely. I've been blown away. I think some of the latest news about people queuing up uh, to view her lying in state three days before her coffin arrives in Westminster Hall, uh, plans for... Or they're expecting the queue to, to see her there to be three miles long. There's uh, a massive outpouring of support for her uh, here from the UK. 
you also see it from the from around the world. I think I kind of briefly alluded to this on Friday when we were talking about some of this, but uh, you know, at the moment, it's kind of, it's provided the monarchy with a bit of a bump with some of these countries saying, well, no, we've got no plans on getting rid of the, the monarchy right now. Countries that were even talking about getting rid of the monarchy a few months ago, hmm. uh, just you know, the death of, of, of Queen Elizabeth has has led to this outpouring of support for her. And I think that's extended even to the whole royal family and the concept of monarchy. So, yeah, the overwhelming response within England, the overwhelming response, I think, within the United States, too, just within uh, everyday Americans. I think there's been a lot of, of response there. I've seen pictures of tributes paid to the Queen at baseball games and, and um, public squares and things like that across the United States. Uh, so within the United States and just all across the world, all across the Commonwealth, even in France, they're lowering, they're putting their flags at half mast and Emmanuel Macron has had some remarkable things to say about the Queen. So overall, incredibly positive all around the world. You mentioned the uh, the positive response within America, and I, I heard one commentator, I think Stephen Flurry might have played the quote in his uh, Trumpet Daily program of some American commentator basically saying that this positive outflowing of support from Americans reflects a character flaw in Americans, that there's something within us that kind of yearns for the glory days of living under a monarch, which is a very bizarre uh, take on, on what you're seeing in America today. We've talked on the program already today about this fixation in the press, especially the American press, bringing up every possible negative association with the Queen. Uh, talk about that from your vantage point there in Britain. Yeah, there is something astonishing about the response of the U.S. media and the radical left administration. I mean, they're the, the same thing, really. It's a revolving door between the two. You know, these are the people that when Qasem Soleimani, you know, this terrorist monster is killed, they call him an austere religious cleric. Mm -hmm. You've got to find some way of putting a positive spin on it. And when it's the Queen of England, where it's not really that hard to find some positive things to say, <laughs> they, so many of them feel like they can't seem to mention this without trying to bring in things like slavery, colonialism, attacking the royal family in just absurd ways. Uh, I enjoyed Andrew Roberts where he was on um, he was on MSNBC and they kind of uh, brought up the queen and colonialism and slavery and tried to make it sound like there was a controversy here try to make it sound like, well, this controversial figure has died or this controversial institution with links to slavery. And he comes along and he's like, look, Britain got rid of slavery 30 years before the United States did and didn't need to fight a war in which 600 people, 600,000 people died in order to do so. Is the presidency linked with slavery? Because that makes as much sense as saying Queen Elizabeth is linked with slavery. Now, I think a lot of these people are self-hating enough that they would say the presidency is linked with uh, slavery, but they know they can't get away with saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, absur it's, it's absurd claims uh, on, on every level. You look at, you just look at the most powerful anti-slavery force in the history of mankind is the Royal Navy. 
And the clues in the name, you know, the first word of that, royal. This is something with a strong association with, with monarchy, something the royal family played a key role in setting up, going all the way back to, say, Alfred the Great uh, a thousand years ago, but Queen Elizabeth I, uh, a great many other royal patrons, setting up this royal navy that became uh, a powerful force. You know, people talk about tried a lot of the history they try to paint here as slavery and racist as the Victorian history, for the first 30 years of the Victorian era, the primary focus of the Royal Navy was stamping out the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So it's a massive, there's just a massive distortion of history, and it's a massive distortion of what people are saying. There are a few left, far left academics within America, I think within Britain as well, that are spouting this kind of nonsense. You go anywhere else and it's not there. You know, there's not a big controversy coming from Africa or coming from the Caribbean or anything like that with the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, they are very much they're, they're, they're pouring out all the all the tributes. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure they're they are able to dig out the odd crank, but uh, that's not the response that they're getting. It really is being pushed by the radical left, the radical left administration. To me, what really made this stand out was just reading a report from a German journalist saying you're kind of remarking on this trend and remarking on how different the response was from America compared to Europe. You know, that here, in theory, you've meant to have this special relationship between Britain and America. He was making this point. And yet the queen dies and European leaders in the European press have nothing but good things to say. And it's the American leadership and the American press that are trying to manufacture debate and controversy. Uh, that, that's quite remarkable. Yeah. I, and the point that you make that, uh, these individuals that they are uh, giving the megaphone to, they really are on the fringe. Uh, you have to look, uh, look hard to find someone who is going to go up on your, your MSNBC interview and, uh, tar the queen as a racist and that type of thing. It's, uh, you know, even for MSNBC to to invite Andrew Roberts on their program and then to hector him because he won't acknowledge just how horrible colonialism is shows you just how perverse their view of of British history is. Now, what's interesting is it, this is not the first time when you look at uh, this happening in America in particular, where the press has been eager to jump on these negative aspects or uh, negative associations with Britain's royal family. You really saw this with some of the accusations made by uh, Meghan Markle just a, a year or two ago. That's right. And so much, uh, you know, I don't think you ever heard accusations of the royal family being racist or having ties to slavery or even really people talking much about royal fam the royal family and colonialism until Meghan Markle. Hmm. And that whole thing, you know, Mexit, uh, really did you know, she really did shout those accusations with a megaphone or she shouted them and then the the US press just could not help you know, lined up to circulate those views even when she was saying statements that were demonstratively false uh, they would not provide all that you know the the same organizations that sound so pious about well we've got to fact check everything and provide both sides and we're not propaganda uh, and it has to be provably true. You know, none of that applied. All of that's out the window. And they were 
you know, they were tr- they were really pushing this. You know, you had the famous interview with with Oprah Winfrey. You had the Washington Post and the New York Times publishing articles stating that uh, that the royal family is racist. The New York Times, for example, writing about interview that interview said the British monarchy is a toxic den of backbiting and racism, and compared it to a bottle of poison. So they're they're in some ways even going more extreme than than the uh, than Meghan Markle herself was going. You had the White House press secretary get involved, praising the courage of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Hillary Clinton getting involved, saying that Britain was cruel and outrageous, what the British press was. Uh, Nick Allen, who is uh, in the Telegraph, or the Telegraph's U.S. editor, said that at the time, you know, the big Oprah interview set off a wave of anti-Britishness and saying the British haven't been in this unpopular in America since they burned the White House down in the War of 1812. <laughs> now, I think a lot of that has subsided within, say, mainstream America. Right. That uh, I've seen even articles recently talking about how even young people within America are starting to wake up to who Meghan Markle really is. And, mm. you know, you ha- you, you've seen all of you know, her podcast hasn't taken off. Her Disney Plus series has been canceled. There doesn't seem to be any massive popularity for her at the, at the ground level. But the radical left and the radical left press, it's exactly the same now as it was back then. They're looking for anything that they can can to push this radically negative view of the British royal family. Now, this makes no sense that uh, that the radical left would be uh, promoting this this bizarre view. And it's so at odds with reality and even the public Uh Except that you understand the spiritual dimension of what is happening here. And this is a, a point that Gerald Flurry, our editor-in-chief, talks about in depth in his book, America Under Attack. Uh, the link between the United States and Britain throughout history and even back to Bible times is, is uh, crucial. And it's, it's established uh, very clearly in that book. And the attack on both of these nations and even the link between them is something that people really have to understand. That's right. I mean, this really does expose the, uh, it's the only way to understand what's happening. Like you said, it just doesn't make any sense without it. Really, you know, both Britain and America have some shameful history with slavery and both Britain and America have some powerful history wiping it out. You know, I mentioned the Royal Navy being the most powerful anti-slavery force in history the, the the other force that could compare with it or that could uh, that might, might also be able to claim that title is the the u.s or the, or the union army mm-hmm. uh so this was something that both countries had a, had a history in stamping out too that is never really talked about and the spiritual reality about this is what mr Perry talks about in america under attack about this effort to blot out israel and his he talks about Israel is such a key, such a profound word. Mr. Armstrong said the Bible is a book about Israel, and rightly so. You, you, f- you go all throughout all the Old Testament, and it's about what is happening with one particular nation. Because wrapped up in this word Israel is, a, is God working with mankind, and a plan that God has for all of mankind. Not just one particular people, uh, but a plan that starts, you know, starts say, with Abraham and starts small and works bigger and will engulf everybody. That God has a plan to reach out to and teach everybody, and that's wrapped up, or he uses Israel as a key role in that. And so what you see now 
is a spirit that wants to wipe out Israel, wants to wipe out that plan for Israel. And Britain and America, as Mr. Armstrong proves in his book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, are descendants from Israel. Uh, the British royal family is something that points you back to God and promises made to God in the Bible that David would always have a descendant ruling over Israel. They would always be a king ruling over Israel. The history of that family uh, points you to that. And so what do you see? You see a hatred for America, a hatred for Britain, a hatred especially for the history of these two peoples, and a hatred for the royal family. And uh, in that article, or in an article last year where Mr. Flurry talked about you know, Harry and Meghan, it was called The Real Rift Caused by the Royal Couple, he wrote, people are creating and aggravating divisions within America and Britain regarding race, class, politics, and anything else they can think of. Now they're sowing divisions between these two nations. Splitting Britain and America apart from one another means they cannot help one another. So in attacking the royal family, you're kind of directly attacking Israel, the concept of Israel, this connection with the Bible, and you're weakening both Britain and America by dividing them. And that's really the spirit that's behind this, whether the individuals who are engaged in this attack are aware of that or not. Yeah, it's a powerful example of how much the understanding of the Bible, the understanding of the identity of these nations in biblical prophecy uh, helps to understand, to inform your view of what is happening before your eyes and to explain something that really is otherwise inexplicable. It, it, uh, what's happening in these countries does not make sense unless you understand what is happening spiritually. And once you do, then the whole picture opens up and you, you can see just what the devil is trying to accomplish here. There really is no uh, no better source to go to to understand that than uh, Gerald Flurry's new book, America Under Attack. We'll link to that in the show notes, as well as this article that uh, Mr. Palmer was talking about, the real rift caused by the royal couple, again, that uh, is based on that, that spiritual understanding. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about the leftist press reaction to Queen Elizabeth's death, particularly in America. He's working on an article about this subject. You can watch for this on thetrumpet.com. We appreciate your time, Mr. Palmer. Great to be here. is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. A positive take now from a man who grew up in one of the British Commonwealth nations and who was proud to be a subject of Queen Elizabeth II. We'll hear a report now from Mihailo Zekic. September 8th of this year started off as a momentous day for me. That was the day I turned 25. I always thought of age 25 as being the final milestone for a boy becoming a man, and my head was swimming with thoughts of what this new badge of maturity would mean for me. Later that day, however, even more momentous news from a few hours north of my home in England reached me. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had died at Balmoral Castle, her estate in the Scottish Highlands. Her death made me think of a quote from another famed monarch of history. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1, 
A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Everybody changes age once a year. There's nothing remarkable in that. But the death of such an iconic figure as Queen Elizabeth is a day to remember. The Queen was 96 years old and just celebrated being on the throne for 70 years. Her death wasn't anything people weren't expecting at some point. But it has still been a big shock to me and to many others. Elizabeth II was queen when I was born in 1997. She was queen when my father was born in 1955. She's been a constant in British, and in my case, Canadian, society for so long, things don't seem completely normal without her. I've been living in the United Kingdom for about two years now, but I was born on the Pacific coast of Canada, on the other side of the world from Buckingham Palace. My home province may be the former colony of British Columbia, but I have no heritage with the original British settlers. My family has its roots in Eastern Europe. My mother is a Serbian citizen born in what was then Yugoslavia, who immigrated to Canada a few decades ago. My father, meanwhile, is a son of World War II-era Yugoslav refugees. I grew up speaking Serbo-Croatian to my family, eating traditional foods, listening to traditional music. My connection to the heritage of Canada and the British Empire was somewhat artificial. And, in multicultural Vancouver, the major city on Canada's west coast where I grew up, a lot of people have similar stories. With everybody being from somewhere else, there isn't a whole lot you can grab onto as a collective national heritage. In a sense, then, I grew up rootless, somewhat detached from the land of my birth. I was, as Deuteronomy 26.11 labels, the stranger that is among you. There was one thing I could hang on to, however. There was one thing that I could proudly claim as my heritage. Her name was Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth and now King Charles, would often be called the head of the British monarchy. But she wasn't only a British monarch. She was the queen of 14 other countries, the Commonwealth realms. Canada was one of those countries. She was my queen. Many may be surprised at how big a presence the monarchy has in Canada. Queen Elizabeth's head is on every coin we have. She's on our $20 bill. Our other banknotes portray the prime ministers that founded our country and led us through the world wars. Her contribution to Canadian society was considered just as important and iconic. The 70 years she reigned was almost half of Canada's existence as a country. In British Columbia, my home province, meanwhile, memorials to the monarchy are everywhere. Our former capital city is New Westminster, after the London borough where Buckingham Palace is located. Our current capital is named after Queen Elizabeth's predecessor on the throne, Victoria. A statue of Queen Victoria sits outside of our provincial parliament building. The name of some of Vancouver's landmarks, Queen Elizabeth Park, Queen Elizabeth Theatre, show how popular the Queen herself was. The monarchy has been a special interest for the trumpet for a long time. Herbert W. Armstrong, 
late theologian and editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, wrote extensively of the British Empire's heritage in his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. Through comparing biblical and secular history, Mr. Armstrong proves that the English-speaking peoples descend from the lost tribes of ancient Israel. England, specifically, descends from the tribe of Ephraim, a tribe God made great promises to. God promised the patriarch Abraham that he would make his descendants, the people of Israel, a great nation. You can read that in Genesis chapter 12. Ephraim would become a greater people than the other tribes. His destiny was to become a multitude, or commonwealth, of nations, as it says in Genesis 48, verse 19. This was fulfilled in the rise of the British Empire in the 19th century. The empire was the largest man had ever seen, and Canada was one of its most important colonies. It was the first to gain dominion status, self-rule under the crown. The monarchy itself, meanwhile, traces its roots back to David, Israel's greatest king. God promised David that he would have an endless throne ruling over Israel, as it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The British and Canadian monarchy was a fulfillment of that promise. This means that Canada's heritage is God's heritage. The monarchy's heritage is God's heritage. Queen Elizabeth's death meant something personal to me. A long time ago, when I was very young, the Queen gave me a gift. It's a gift I've hung onto and cherished all these years later. And it's a gift I refuse to let go of. My birth on Canadian soil automatically made me a Canadian citizen. It made me a subject of Her Majesty, who also reigned over the other Ephraimite countries of Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. It reads on my passport, The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada requests in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely. The bearer of this passport is a Canadian citizen. My photograph in my passport, meanwhile, sits next to our royal coat of arms. Being born a subject of the Queen made me born an honorary Ephraimite. It gave me a connection to the great heritage the British Empire and the monarchy represent. This heritage I treasure. It's a heritage that, if my family's worldwide migrations had played out differently, I would have never had and I posthumously thank Her Majesty for giving me that heritage. Soon Britain's empire spread around the world until the sun never set upon her possessions, Mr. Armstrong wrote in The United States and Britain in Prophecy. He continues, Canada, Australia, South Africa were given dominion status, made free and independent nations, ruling themselves independent of England. A company, or commonwealth, of nations joined together, not by legal government, but solely by the throne of David. Whether you are from Melbourne or Montreal, Gibraltar or Jamaica, Northern Ireland or New Zealand, 
you could claim the queen and her throne as your heritage. And you could be a part of a special brotherhood with all of her subjects around the world. I was born into that special brotherhood and never, ever regretted it. The queen returned the love her Canadian subjects had for her. In 2010, her last visit to Canada, she told former Prime Minister Stephen Harper her mother, quote, once said that this country felt like a home away from home for the Queen of Canada. Prime Minister, I am pleased to report that it still does. End quote. On the news of her death, Harper said the Queen, quote, loved Canada with all her heart and was truly one of us. The current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, happened to be in Vancouver when the news of her death broke out. Here's an excerpt of what he told the press. It is with the deepest of sorrow that we learn today of the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She was our queen for almost half of Canada's existence, and she had an obvious, deep, and abiding love and affection for Canadians. She served us all with strength, and wisdom for 70 years as we grew into the diverse, optimistic, responsible, ambitious, and extraordinary country we are today. As her 12th Canadian Prime Minister, I'm having trouble believing that my last sit-down with her was my last. I will so miss those chats. She was thoughtful, wise, curious, helpful, funny, and so much more. In a complicated world, her steady grace and resolve brought comfort and strength to us all. Canada is in mourning. She was one of my favorite people in the world, and I will miss her so. There's a lot about Mr. Trudeau's politics I don't agree with. But if there was a time for Canadians of all affiliations to forget political problems and join together, it would be now. I too mourn the death of one of my favorite people in the world. For much different reasons than Mr. Trudeau's, I'm sure. But I nevertheless fly the maple leaf of my heart at half-mast. I'm sure Canadians from coast to coast feel the same. Your Majesty, you will be missed. It's time for today's Last Word. Our life is frittered away by detail, wrote Thoreau. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, not a hundred or a thousand. He wrote that in 1854. What would this man think of the life frittering details that consume us in the Twitter age? 
Contemplating this, I recently picked up Farrar Fenton's translation of the Bible in my study. A friend gave me a copy a while back, but it wasn't until that morning that I realized I was in possession of something quite awesome and inspiring. At the beginning of this massive volume is a note to my inquiring friends from the translator. It is Mr. Fenton's explanation of why he, a British businessman in the 19th century, undertook the mammoth project of translating the entire Bible. It's a testament to the manly sense of duty, determination, sacrifice, perseverance, and big-mindedness behind this book. It truly stirred my imagination. Fenton paraphrases a Professor Karl Baer of Munich who taught, The best established doctrine of historical philosophy was that all the power, prosperity, and mental energy of a race or nation sprang from and lived by its religion. That when the religion ceased to be its faith, that is, its energizing principle, The intellect, power, vigor, and prosperity of that race or nation died away in proportion and ultimately perished both mentally and physically. How true and how painfully relevant in our aggressively secularist age. Fenton then says this, The position the British race has won in the world is founded upon the religion which takes as its origin the Bible. And therefore, I am convinced that with the decay of faith in the scriptures, our national vigor and prosperity as a race will waste away, not only in the British Isles, but as with all races, in every state or colony sprung from them. Consequently, I will try at least to avert or retard so great a catastrophe and calamity to the whole of mankind. I have decided, God helping me, to execute the work you see I am doing. Why translate the entire Bible into modern English? Fenton said, My object is to try and save the British race from decay and dissolution by restoring to it the vital element of faith in revelation. For unless its faith is revived, our doom is certain. I find several things about this astounding. The fact that this man recognized so clearly the importance of Bible-based faith to national health and prosperity, even survival, that he particularly believed this to be true of Britain and its empire and of America, that he knew the decline of these nations would be a catastrophe and a calamity to the world. In 1910, when Fenton wrote this introduction to his Bible translation, he quoted a critic of his work who said, Nobody cares a half penny for the Bible. A century later, that indifference has turned to outright hatred. We live in a Britain and an America that are increasingly making adherence to biblical truth a crime punishable by the state. This all made Fenton's words stir me as I read them, but there's something more. I'm also deeply impressed that this man possessed such determined focus to try to single-handedly prevent or at least delay this catastrophe using the means he believed God inspired him to. Fenton perceived a need for a modern translation of the Bible. He recognized this was a task nobody else would undertake. So what did he do? He got started. And then he didn't stop until he finished. He wrote this, 
I saw the need also, not only as a student, but from intercourse with all classes of my countrymen. And God inspired me with courage to undertake it and with inborn perseverance during a period of 50 years to carry it through by devoting every leisure moment of a busy commercial life to the preparation for and execution of that one object. It was in 1853, at the same time that Thoreau was walking the woods of Walden Pond, that Fenton started this mammoth undertaking. He finished in 1903 at the age of 71. It's astonishing what singular devotion to an important task can yield. How critical it is that we prune out those life frittering details and make the very most of the brief time we possess. For today, too, there is a great work to be done in the shadow of looming catastrophe. It demands courage perseverance and devotion to that one object simplicity 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 Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from John Stuart Mill. The person who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.